I'm Tim Gombis, and this is Faith Improvised. It's a podcast where I can think out loud and talk with friends about whatever interests me. Books, films, sports, music, culture, politics, the wonders and complexities of being Christian in this world, and my academic discipline, biblical studies. You're welcome to email me if you like at faithimprovised at gmail.com. In this episode, I share a little bit about a few books I'm reading these days, and I talk about the closing to Paul's letter to the Romans. So I'm standing here in my kitchen looking out on a very bright day on this first day of spring, May 21st. We had a good bit of uh, fog early this morning, and there's some haze that is not yet fully burned off. It's a very bright day, but the sun has yet to fully peek through. It's trying, and apparently it's going to later this afternoon, so that by the time I finish recording, I'll be able to get out and take a nice long walk in some 60-degree weather. It's supposed to get up to, to the mid-60s. Oh, there comes the sun. Or I should say, here comes the sun. This is a great time of year. A lot of wonderful things happening. Uh, the NCAA tournament is going on, March Madness. And we're through uh, the first couple of rounds over the last weekend. And it's always a thrill. And there are always um, obvious, sure things and teams that are perennial powers that go down to defeat to absolute nobodies. And that happened to Kentucky with... Uh, St. Peter's University defeating them, and St. Peter's beat, um, oh, it's at the tip of my tongue, uh, Murray State, uh, whom a number of people picked to um, advance a couple of rounds. So, and that's along with a couple of other um, significant upsets. So it's been fun the last this last weekend watching uh, some of the basketball. I don't watch a lot of college basketball. I used to be very, very into it. And, um, but around this time of year, it's kind of fun to pay attention or at least taking a couple games because they're so urgent and the level, the, you know, the competition sort of gets ramped up and it's just so stinking exciting. Uh, opening day for baseball is two weeks away. Got that day marked on my calendar two weeks from Thursday when, uh, uh, the Cubs are playing and I'm going to be that, that day is marked off. I will not be bothered at 2.20 Eastern time. Cubs uh, have their home opener. And um, that'll be a, an especially exciting week because it's Masters week. First big uh, tournament of the year, the first major of the golf season. And that's why I just love this time of year. Just such exciting things happening in the world of sports. Just fun diversions to get us... Um, you know, looked away from either the mundaneness of life or the ongoing national and international crises that are sort of consuming our world and our attention. Have to say, I cracked up a little bit about uh, over the amount of people that wrote to me about my adventures in small talk, my uh, my adventures in quipping with strangers, which is not something that I ever like to do. Um, I still hate it. I don't hate people. I just don't do small talk. I, uh, my patron saint is Larry David. And I just feel like with people that I don't know, don't talk to me. We don't need to talk. When I travel, I put my earbuds in and I just listen to music, follow the crowd when it's time to board an airplane. And uh, I do realize I've got small earbuds, so people may not be able to see those. I think I need to do... Uh, 
like Sarah has got these massive noise canceling Bose headphones. I need to get those. Um, whether or not I'm listening to music, that would just be a massive billboard saying, don't talk to me. I can't hear you. In fact, I have these on so that I don't hear you. Not angry, not upset. We just don't need to talk. There's no need to develop a three-minute relationship that's not going anywhere. What do you need? What do you need from me? That's my approach to strangers. What, what are we doing here? We, we don't have to kibitz. There's no kibitzing. I do not do kibitzing. Anyway, uh, that was my brief adventure with small talk, and I've not continued that and have no intention to do so. It was I found it exhausting. Um, slightly more seriously, um, I, I've gotten a couple of comments along this line over the last number of months. And so I, I, I thought I would say something about it. Um, every once in a while I get a comment about how something that I will have said is a challenge to, you know, evangelical thinking or evangelical theology or challenges, evangelical assumptions or whatever. And so I wanted to say just a brief word about how I understand what it means to be evangelical or what evangelical even means. Um, I do not understand evangelical as a theology. I don't think it is. Um, and I think it is not. Even uh, To say evangelical is not to denote a theology. Um, over the last 70 years or so, with the rise of evangelicalism, evangelical theologians have sort of tried to nail down what is evangelical theology. And that's a project that's never really gotten anywhere. Um, because various evangelical theologians have the, have the theology of their denomination, but they somehow also think of themselves as evangelical. Um, and there's never been any sort of agreed upon, you know, or any kind of a consensus about evangelical theology, apart from the fact that it is inerrancy. And uh, to me, evangelical does not denote a theology, but rather a posture. It's sort of a way of being Orthodox Christian. Uh, neither does evangelical denote a culture. In fact, I think that all of these things are corruptions or misunderstandings to think that evangelical is a theology or evangelical is a culture. Um, the way that I understand being evangelical is that it's a it's sort of a prophetic movement or a prophetic impulse within mainline denominations that is um you know the various mainline denominations like methodism or presbyterianism um or uh, baptist denominations these denominations uh, sort of have their historic set of practices and their historic theology and over time over the centuries, they sort of become calcified, and uh, there are there are people who are sort of dissatisfied with um, the fact that uh, you know a church or a denomination can sort of become calcified and stodgy and sort of stuck in their ways, and uh, can take on practices and patterns and dynamics that are not sort of actively Christian, and such people will agitate and. Um, sort of call for renewal and call for serious Christian practice within those denominations, like to really mean it. To be a part of this church is not to be part of a country club, y'all. Let's, you know, we really need to mean it uh, to be devoted to what Jesus has said to do, 
uh, to be taking care of the poor, the outcast, and the marginalized, to actually have lives that look Christian. That is an evangelical posture to sort of attend carefully to Scripture and to really mean it in being Christian. Um, and I say that it's a prophetic movement because uh, I think that it's helpful to keep in mind that there are different characters in the story of biblical Israel. There are priests and there are prophets. And uh, the priests sort of represent the establishment. The priests are people that can be found in the royal courts. They're welcomed into um, courtly life in ancient Israel. And the priests inhabit the court and they bless the king. You know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The, you know, the Lord uh, bless the king and the, may the Lord bless the people. And the priest kind of plays that role of um, voicing to God's people, I love you. You sort of exist um, upheld by God's love and God's goodness and God's kindness. That's the priestly role. That's the priestly task. They're, they sort of represent the establishment, the institution. The prophet is absolutely anti-institutional. The prophet's on the outside. The prophet is an outsider and is not part of the institution, is not part of the establishment. And when the prophet comes storming into the royal courts, uh, the king is on edge and the people are on edge and everybody that's part of the royal court is on edge and everybody gets quiet and everybody gets nervous. And uh, if, if a king is really feeling it, uh, he might order a prophet to be thrown in jail or thrown into a pit or just executed. Um, but the prophet comes in and says, the king is a rascal. The king is corrupt. He's a jackal. He's completely two-faced. He's a hypocrite. He's completely perverse with regard to the ways of God. And the people are corrupt as well. And God's judgment is on its way. The prophets are the ones always agitating and always unsettling the people of God. And the voice of the priest and the voice of the prophet are both necessary among the people of God so that God is always saying to his people, I love you. You exist upheld by my goodness and my love and my blessing. And God is always saying to his people, don't get comfortable. We've got to unsettle patterns. Because being the people of God requires you really meaning it, you really taking it to heart and not falling into complacency with regard to developing unjust patterns of, of social life, with regard to marginalizing people and oppressing and mistreating people. Um, the prophet's voice is God's way of saying to his people, to be the people of God is to be always in these practices of repentance and renewal and restoration. Um, so that, you know, calcifying dynamics among God's people are always being torn down and eliminated. And I'm saying all that to say, I'm setting up this, you know, this um, distinction between prophets and priests to say that evangelicals over the last um, 150 years and beyond, um, but to be evangelical is to have that, uh, that prophetic posture and that prophetic voice. It is to sort of exist within uh, historic Christian traditions and denominations, but to always be calling the church to renewal and to repentance, to be unsettling um, ideologies and to be unsettling practices so that 
the people of God are meaning it. They're really doing what it is that God has called his people to do. And it seems to me that over the last, um, I don't know, 80 to, uh, to 90 years of even American evangelical history, evangelicals uh, sort of gave up, gave up on denominations and left them, left mainline denominations and started their own. Um, because they saw mainline denominations as basically corrupted beyond redemption, and they started their own institutions, their own Bible colleges and seminaries and all the rest. And uh, that's the culture in which I grew up. That uh, That's the culture in which I was raised. But what I have come to see is that those denominations and uh, organizations and institutions know themselves to be evangelical. Um, they know that they're evangelical, but they don't know what evangelical means because they have unintentionally become priestly. That is, they are they are the agents of renewal, and they're the ones who should never have institutional power, but are always agitating those in institute in positions of institutional power. And what they did is, you know, a century ago, started their own institutions. So now we have prophetic institutions. And uh, to be evangelical is largely to exist in evangelical institutions, which are um, institutions of power. They're structures of power. And, you know, in biblical Israel, prophets never had power, but their power was speaking the word of God to God's people. And that came at great risk because they just might get thrown into a pit or get their head chopped off. But now um, evangelicals wield power. And anybody who behaves as a historic evangelical that is sort of exercises that prophetic voice or calls the institution to account um, runs the risk of being tossed out. So um, it's weird for me to hear, um, you know, someone say something like you're challenging evangelical assumptions or something like that, because that's what evangelical means. It means taking on a posture of always challenging our own assumptions. Being evangelical is not a settled thing. Um, to be evangelical is to exist in a constant posture of being unsettled. It's this ongoing dynamic of renewal and repentance and always pointing out the calcifying dynamics in our denominations, in our churches, in our organizations, in our, in, in our institutions. And I think that that is something that American evangelicals have not ever come to grips with, the reality of how um, sort of a way of being Christian that was originally intended to be prophetic has become um, unknowingly um, priestly. And so there's, a, there's an identity confusion, and because of that, very often, it seems to me, evangelical institutions and organizations uh, just run into confusing problems. So that, like I said, if there's somebody who is evangelical with regard to their posture within an evangelical institution that is challenging assumptions and um, issuing, you know, a challenging way of issuing challenges to sort of settled ways of being Christian, um, that cannot be tolerated. So anyway, it's not my uh, aim necessarily to sort of um, unsettle anybody's assumptions or to say anything that is unsettling. But um, my overall aim 
in many ways in wanting to really understand what it means to be Christian is largely resonant with an attempt to be seriously evangelical, like to really attend to what it means to be Christian. And even if that, uh, from the pages of the New Testament, even if that runs against the grain of what I, what I heard in my tradition, um, you know, being brought up, that's, that's neither here nor there. Of course, that's the case. It's pro it's, it's, it's probably going to happen that all of my assumptions are unsettled because that's what it means to be evangelical. So anyway, just thought I would make a note about that. I want to tell you about a few books. I normally talk about a book I've just read in this segment, but these days I'm in the middle of one massive book and I'm reading another shorter volume. The big one has an audacious title. It's called The Dawn of Everything, A New History of Humanity. It's written by David Graeber and David Wengrow, and it's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. My son Riley told me about this book. He's read some of Graeber's other titles, and we had a few conversations about his work, and this one specifically, over the Christmas holidays. David Graeber, who passed away a few years ago, was an anthropologist. And David Wengrow is a comparative archaeologist. In this book, they collaborated to gather together loads of research in anthropology and archaeology in order to shed new light on how ancient humans actually lived. Like in so many academic fields, scholars specialize in subfields and tend to pursue their work in ideological silos, seldom bringing their conclusions to bear on the wider and overarching narratives that shape our general conception of things. In this book, Graeber and Wengro do just that. They question many of the broad assumptions about how ancient humans lived and how we develop socially. Our typical assumption of human development is that humans were originally hunter-gatherers, socially organized in egalitarian bands. Once humans learned agriculture, hierarchies developed and civilization emerged, and this was the beginning of inequality. Graeber and Wengro question this surveying the studies of ancient civilizations from indigenous tribes in North America, Africa, Asia, and South America. In fact, early humans experimented with a range of social organization. Some tribes altered their social organization with the change of seasons. During warmer seasons, they organized themselves into egalitarian bands. And during winter months, they gathered together into what we might call a civilization and established hierarchies only to disband that structure with the change of season, returning to an egalitarian arrangement. And the authors surveyed criticisms of indigenous thinkers who came into contact with Europeans in the 16th and 17th centuries. Native Americans saw the Europeans who came to this land as having social arrangements that were anything but free. Europeans were possessive and grasping, and their culture was characterized by competition and lack of social cohesion. By contrast, Native people were bound by loyalty to their communities, making sure that everyone was cared for and looked after. In fact, notions of individual freedom did not originate in Europe, but were ideas lifted by European thinkers from indigenous American critics of European culture. The Dawn of Everything is the sort of book that is just a serious delight to read. Not only is it well-written with lively prose, but it subjects long-held assumptions to critical scrutiny forcing readers to look at supposedly settled knowledge from new angles, asking new questions that lead to astonishing insights. 
It's a massive work. I'm currently in the middle of it. and look forward to talking more about it down the road. I'm also reading The Church Cracked Open, Disruption, Decline, and New Hope for Beloved Community. It's written by Stephanie Spellers and published by Church Publishing. We're discussing this book at our church, and our conversations thus far have been quite lively. This is a very recently published book, and Spellers writes in the wake of a global pandemic and the protests that rocked America after George Floyd's murder. She discerns in this moment an opportunity for the church to take stock of its condition and attend to whether this might be the perfect time for self-evaluation and repentance. Just like the woman in the Gospels who entered a meal at which Jesus was present and cracked open a jar of expensive perfume, might this be a time when the church is being cracked open? She speaks to the church from a profoundly theological point of view rather than any culturally bound perspective shaped by liberal democracy. She brings to bear theological notions as, for example, how kenosis or self-emptying might shape the church's approach to dealing with its racialization. Spellers is an Episcopalian priest and theologian, and she writes mainly for Episcopalians, though Christians from any church tradition would greatly benefit from reading her work. I'm smack in the middle of this book, too, and I look forward to talking about uh, it a bit more down the road as well. The two books that I'm currently reading are The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wengro, and The Church Cracked Open by Stephanie Spellers. You can get both of them from an independent bookstore. So I said in the last episode that uh, Romans 14 and 15, that is 14.1 to 15.13, is the rhetorical climax of Paul's letter. And really, uh, in my opinion, that comes down to like verses uh, 5 through 8 or so of chapter 15. Um, because in those chapters, Paul brings his entire argument down to the concrete situation of the conflict in the Roman network of house churches. Um, I mean, everything that he has said throughout the entire letter bears on that situation. Uh, but it's in 14 and 15 that he gets very specific, addressing the strong and the weak. Um, and that's been my reading of Paul's letter to the Romans. It's not a theological treatise. It's not some abstracted work of theology where Paul's talking about doctrine. His aim from beginning to end has been to bring together these two factions um, in the Roman network of house churches that are squabbling, that are, you know, set over against each other, with one group passing judgment um, against the other group, and that is the weak against the strong, and the strong despising the weak. Like, what the heck is wrong with you people? Um, the weak imagining that uh, the strong are outside the bounds of God's work in Christ. Like, this is a, a profound difference. It's not just a difference of what we might regard as opinion, um, but it is a difference between what is like, you know, orthodox Christian. I mean, these are just not terms that would be used in the first century, um, but this is a far profounder divide uh, than we imagine. And that's why in the previous episode, I said this can be sort of compared not merely to, you know, worship wars. You like choruses and we like you know, hymns, um, this I think is something where one group imagines like you can't be Christian and do what you do, which is why I think this can be fruitfully applied 
to matters um, that are up for serious discussion in our culture, in our time. Um, so 14 and 15 are the climax of the letter. And in uh, from chapter 15, verses 14 onward, Paul's really just drawing his presentation to a close. And so in this episode, I just want to talk about a handful of items from 1514 onward to the end of the letter. And then in the next episode, I plan to draw together a bunch of strands that I've touched on here and there in talking about Romans over the last several months and bring the entire uh, season three of this podcast to a conclusion. So uh, in verse 14, there's a little bit of a transitional term with when he begins with now. Um, typically in Paul's presentations, when he, when he starts like this, he's making a turn. And that's why I divided, which is common, commentators sort of end a section of text at verse 13 and see that verse 14 is a, a transition to the close of the letter. Where Paul says, Now I become persuaded, my brothers and sisters, concerning you, that you are that you all also are full of goodness, having become full of knowledge, being able also to admonish one another. Uh, so basically, what, what he with what he has said to them to this point, in addition to everything that Phoebe has elaborated to them, they're able now to exhort one another to cultivate the communal habits of life that represent an embody that represent the embodiment of the new creation life that Paul has written them about. They're able to tell when it's going well, when it's not going well. And they're able now to, um, to call one another out and to call one another, you know, each group to call the other group and people within their groups to call people of that same group to account, to call them away from destructive community habits. Um, the community practices that reinforce unhealthy hierarchies or the community habits that foster division, uh, the ways that people can demonize others or participate in gossip or slander or whatever. All those behaviors and practices and habits of mind um, and uh, habits of practice that sort of naturally come about um, that foster divisions in communities, they're able to sort of police themselves and call one another out um, when people run afoul of what Paul is even talking about. Verse 15 is always striking to me um, when he says, and I wrote to you boldly. In fact, I wrote to you more boldly in parts, reminding you, um, but, you know, by way of reminding you because of the grace which was given to me by God. I always find it so fascinating that Paul says about his letter to the Romans that he wrote to them boldly, which you cannot say if this is some abstract theological treatise. If this was just meant to be in a library, um, the first work of systematic theology, this is not a very bold work. But it's a bold work if it's pastoral confrontation. And Paul here is acting like a pastor confronting the division in the Roman network of house churches. It's not abstract and dispassionate theological speculation, uh, even though it's been read like that for so many generations. It's become fodder for uh, particular um, formulations of justification by faith, which we then can pick up and beat one another up 
um, with, you know, come up with our formulation for justification and then hold hearings to get other people, you know, excluded from our denomination or whatever, like a bunch of fighting Presbyterians or whatever. And Presbyterians don't have a um, corner on the market of squabbling. This is the legacy of the Protestant West that has broken itself up into countless denominations, usually over doctrinal formulations. Based in Romans, a letter designed to bring about unity. Jeez Louise, the irony. Anyway, Paul sees himself as writing a bold pastoral letter, which um, it is bold if you read, if you carefully attend to his words. And the boldness starts in 2-1, when he just drops that bomb on the weak and confronts them to their faces because of their hypocrisy. Um, and I think this is bold also in the three appearances of the expression to the Jew first and then to the Greek, where in chapter one, um, I think that that's a setup when Paul talks about how the gospel has gone to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And I think that that is the first tip off to the weak that Paul is taking their side. So that then in 118 to 32, when he lets loose with this typical Jewish screed against Gentile idolatry, uh, the weak think that Paul is on their side and they're, they're having their self-righteous, um, you know, sentiments aroused so that in 2-1, Paul goes right after them and then twice uses that expression to the Jew first and then to the Greek sarcastically. This is bold. It's a very bold letter. And um, interesting, the second half of verse 15, Paul says that he's doing this because of the grace which was given to me by God. And that's how Paul refers to his apostolic commission in several places in his letters. Um, and I'm struck by what Paul does not say. Uh, when, he, when he talks about his apostolic commission, he uses a bunch of different metaphors, like he's uh, a nursing mother, or he's a mother in, he's a woman in labor. Um, in here, he talks sort of, not metaphorically, but concretely. He talks about the grace or the grace gift or the empowerment, uh, which was given to me by God. So it's a passive expression. God gave to Paul this commission, and that's why he's written to them boldly. Uh, if, he, if he were not um, apostle to the non-Jewish world um, and for non-Jewish churches, he wouldn't be writing to them. But it's God's call on his life, and this is his, his mission, is to do this. That's why he's written to them. What I'm struck by is what Paul doesn't say. Just because of, um, at least this is what I hear, how folks typically refer to Paul when, when, he, has, when he makes reference to his apostleship. Um, I just hear so much talk about, quote-unquote, apostolic authority. Paul's authority as an apostle. And it just seems to me that in evangelical circles, there is such concern for authority, whereas that is so little, if ever, spoken about by Paul. Um, when Paul constructs his, um, his, his self-understanding as an apostle, he always uses metaphors that put him beneath his audiences. He's a servant, just like Jesus is a servant. Um, but when when we think about, because we 
because we're in sort of the Christian culture that America has spawned with its celebritizing dynamics, you know, we like to think about some mega church pastor or some influential, uh, you know, celebrity YouTube pastor or something like that. So we think in terms of authority and at least in my inherited culture of evangelicalism, where there is no authority because there's no official, like a, a church structure or anything like that. Everybody's on the lookout for authorities and people sort of construct their own identities according to authority. And they try to speak authoritatively um, imagining that they can do so based on how Paul presents himself, but that's simply not the case. He does what he does with regard to the Roman churches because of the grace which was given to me by God. Um, and that's a specific role. So anyway, I think that constructing Paul as being so wrapped up with apostolic authority, I think says a whole lot more about who we like Paul to be than about how Paul thought about himself. I think there's a lot, a lot to dig into there. Just like so much theology is projection of hopes and fears, uh, the projection of human hopes and human fears, so much of what is put onto Paul is also a projection of um, ambitions and hopes and fears as well. Interesting that in verse 16, uh, Paul talks about how he's serving as a priest, the gospel of God and uh, the fruit that he gains among the among the nations or among the Gentiles is sort of the offering that he is bringing as a priest. So here is, after speaking concretely about his ministry, here's another metaphor. He's a priest and he's ministering in non-Jewish lands among non-Jewish people to bring them into the salvation that is offered by God in Christ and um, if the Roman network of house churches are already in Christ, he's bringing them, he's bringing gospel work, sorry, he's doing gospel work among them to bring them into unity. And all of that is sort of the offering that he as a priest can make to God. So he sees his role in priestly terms, um, which again, I'm not sure what notions of authority would go along with that. I just think take authority out. Paul imagines himself doing priestly service. And by the way, go back to uh, 12, 1 and 2. He calls the Roman uh, Christians to all, um, to all also do priestly work. Um, they are both the priests that offer a sacrifice, and they are themselves the sacrifice. So interesting how priestly... Um, Priestly work can be brought to bear to speak about not only Paul's apostolicity, but Christian existence. And um, I guess that shouldn't be too surprising because uh, the whole of Romans kind of builds on that. Um, in Romans 1, uh, 118 to 32, the decline narrative, the descent into degradation uh, and into idolatry, um, has to do partly with a perversion of priestly work. Whereas humans were originally designed to do priestly work for God in creation, um, drawing on sort of God's presence in the garden, they're, they're doing priestly work with pushing back the boundaries um, of garden space and bringing order to what is disordered. That's how they would glorify God. That was human worship of the one true God, the transcendent God who is great king over all the earth. Um, instead of doing that, 
there's the great alteration of image and humans begin instead spreading chaos into creation and spreading um, unrighteousness or injustice within creation rather than mimicking God's just character by bringing about order and flourishing and shalom. And that perversion of the human is set right by God in Christ where God rectifies or transforms or fixes or sets right the human in Christ so that that priestly service can be restored. And that's what Paul gets to in 12, 1 and 2. So there's a sense in which the broad uh, frame of reference that Paul uses is priestly. So we shouldn't be too surprised that he puts his own um, apostolic role in terms of priestly service here in chapter 15. In uh, verses 17 to 21, we continue to get a glimpse of, of how Paul sees ministry on his terms, uh, where he says that he has a cause of boasting in Christ Jesus with reference to things concerning God. Um, verse 18, for I will not dare to speak of anything which God has not accomplished through me, leading to the obedience of the nations in word and work. And I'm substituting, instead of translating the term Gentiles, I'm using nations because it's the same term. It's the same Greek word. But I'm doing that in order to demonstrate how it is that Paul's outlook on the world and, and his, his understanding of the gospel um, drew upon Israel's mission. They were to be a light to the nations. And so when Paul is bringing in, or he's sort of fostering the obedience of faith among the nations, uh, that's really an extension of the mission of Israel. Unfortunately, we diminish that, uh, that correspondence when we talk about Gentiles. Um, it, it seems like that's sort of a different term. Gentiles does not denote um, an ethnic category. Gentiles are just people who are not Jewish. So that could be anybody. Um, but also, if we, if we just substitute the English word nations, which is a legitimate translation of the Greek term ethne, if we use the term nations, that sort of taps into that narrative of Israel's mission in the world where they were to be a light to the nations. That's what Paul is doing. He's extending out um, Israel's mission. But he talks about his boast. Um, and we have to get out of our minds, you know, bragging or boasting as we might understand it. And this is somewhat similar to the boast that Paul gives to the Roman Christians in 5, 1 through 11, where he uses that term three times. And many of our English translations give us something like exalt. Um, one of the things that's transformed as Paul unweaves his argument or weaves or unravels or unpacks the way that Paul draws out his argument throughout Romans is he has a boast that he wants to rebuke in 327 to 31. Um, the weak are boasting over against the strong in their superior identity. And that has to go based on justification by faith. Everybody's sort of, um, I mean, God gathers everybody together in condemnation and then he gathers everybody together in salvation. And because of that, no group can boast over against another. But Paul replaces that inappropriate boast with boasting in God and boasting in hope of the glory of God and in boasting in our sufferings. Um, that is, this is a way that Paul wants the Roman Christians to identify themselves. Like this is their thoroughgoing, holistic, pervasive, 
uh, totalizing identity. This is who they are. And this is how Paul identifies himself. This is his boast um, that he carries out his mission and it bears fruit. And what he's getting at there is he's tying himself and his his whole identity together with the health of his of the communities that he's serving, which is pretty wild. Um, that's how he sees himself. Like his status before God has a direct correlation to how well uh, his communities are doing, and um, sort of the results of his gospel preaching and then his shepherding the, of those communities. He says in verse 18 that he won't speak about anything that Christ has accomplished through any, anybody else, but he's going to talk about his own work, his own ministry. Um, not to say that he doesn't want to take credit for other people. He'll only take credit for his own efforts. He's not even talking necessarily about taking credit um, because he envisions his ministry as what Christ is accomplishing through him. Um it's just that his identity is wrapped up fully with the fruit of his ministry. He goes around the Mediterranean world preaching the gospel and planting churches. These are communities of new creation life, you know, just scattered around the Mediterranean. And when those uh, break out, when, when kingdom of God communities sort of break out into existence, those are evidence of God's work through Paul. And Paul ties himself directly with those communities. Um, and of course, for Paul, once a church is planted, um, he's done gospel work. Like gospel work is done. A lot of people today assume that a church is sort of a mission based for the gospel to go out into the world. That's not how Paul saw stuff. Because he says in verse 19 that... Um, you know, throughout the Mediterranean world up until this point, I have fulfilled the gospel of Christ. It's done. Gospel work is done. Because what he understands is that when he goes into a town and preaches the gospel and a church is birthed, um, that's, you know, gospel work and evangelism is done. It's over. Time for Paul to move on to a new place and plant a church in a new place. Um, because what a church is in any sort of town around the Mediterranean is this kind of symbol that this kind of flag that's planted in the ground, this, this uh, claim that is staked um, that in the face of oppressive empire, new creation life is able to break out. And if there's a gospel community there, evangelism, evangelism is done. And now the fruit of evangelism, which is a church um, should be taken over. And that is a community learning the practices of being a kingdom of God community, being a community that is new creation life. And of course, that's a years long task, learning the practices of forgiveness and reconciliation and service and all the rest. Churches are not uh, mission bases for evangelism. Churches are the fruit. They're the result of evangelism, at least is how, at least that's how Paul saw things. Um. Verses 21 to 23, uh, Paul talks, he just kind of expands on this a little bit. Uh, Paul does not want to go anywhere where um, there's already a church. He doesn't want to build on somebody else's foundation because he's a foundation layer. That's his task. 
is to set foundations and then let churches sort of grow into themselves. That's just simply his task. And then he talks about his desire to get to um, to join these people in Rome in uh, verses 23 and 24. He wants to get there to Rome because his ultimate desire is to make it all the way to Spain. He's already talked about how he has preached the gospel around a certain part of the Mediterranean. Now he wants to get all the way to the end of the world. He wants to carry out his gospel ministry as far as you could possibly go. And in Paul's mind, that is Spain. After Spain, there's just nothing but water. Um, there was consciousness in the Roman world that there was another island past Spain, um, this wild and woolly place um, called Britain. Um the Romans had gone there in the generation. Well, actually, I think Julius Caesar had sent um, a battalion there. And then uh, that, island, that island was later explored. In fact, I think Caesar's people, uh, Caesar sent some folks there and they kind of told these crazy tales about dragons and giants. And they did not spend much time there at all and just came back um, uh, to mainland Europe. But the Romans later went there. <clears throat> and um, sort of, quote-unquote, settled or colonized um, Britain, at least up until up, up north to Scotland. But Paul wants to get to Spain, and he's hoping to use the Roman churches as sort of um, a mission base as he keeps going back to the farthest limits of the West. Um, and I believe it's First Clement in his letter, he says that Paul actually didn't make it. There's no record of this in the New Testament, but there's testimony from the early church that Paul actually did make it to Spain. Um, that very well may be the case. Uh, verses 25 to 27 have to do with the contribution of the churches to the poor in Jerusalem. This is one of the things that Paul is doing as he, as he travels, is he's... Um, uh, collecting funds in order to sort of give back to the mother church in Jerusalem materially in sort of an act of gratitude for how the Jerusalem church has been the source of blessing to uh, non-Jewish churches around the Mediterranean world. And as Paul says there in verse 27, for they were pleased and are debtors of them. For if the Gentiles or the nations shared in their spiritual things, they're obligated also in their fleshly things to do temple service with them. So again, um, the churches, the non-Jewish churches around the Mediterranean are being priests here, offering to the Jerusalem church this offering of funds to help um, with whatever they need there. This is one of perhaps two collections that Paul brought to Jerusalem. He's not trying to pay anybody off or buy favor, uh, but this is one small thing that Paul feels that he can do to unite sort of the two wings of the first century church. Um, there was tension between Paul and the Jerusalem leadership uh, because some of the Jerusalem leadership and many of the Jerusalem Christians did not, could not conceive of the Christian movement absorbing non-Jews within it. And uh, Paul realized that this was a struggle. It's, it's the number one crisis on the pages of the New Testament, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the Christian movement. And Paul wants to play his part to bring about 
that unity and to foster it. I mean, goodness, this is what the whole letter to the Romans is all about. Um, but he makes mention of it there. There's a sense in which uh, everything ends at 1533, and if the letter ended at that point, this would be a complete letter, and there is some discussion <clears throat> about whether chapter 16 or portions of chapter 16 are later additions. Um, but I just want to touch on a few things, and I'll skip over a bunch of these greetings and then make a couple of comments about some later things that Paul has to say at the end of 16. But it's interesting, Paul commends Phoebe here. Uh, it seems that Paul has sent this letter in her charge. Like she is in charge of this mission team that has been sent from Paul to the Roman house churches. And it's very likely that she's the one who read the letter. And if she's not the one who read it, because uh, reading and writing were not necessarily common skills. Well, they were writing was uh, a very uncommon skill in the first century world, and therefore reading would have been as well. But it may be that uh, Phoebe is sort of uh, in charge of the person who will read the letter, and then Phoebe herself is the one who will take questions or will elaborate or will clarify or will say what Paul meant. So basically, the first teacher or preacher of Romans to its first audiences was Phoebe. Um, and apparently, Paul's not shy at all about having his most famous letter be taught to its first audiences by a woman. Um, and it's it's sort of ironic that in, in our day, and there are historical reasons for this, um, a lot of them pretty depressing, there are a lot of reasons why Paul... Or a lot, why a lot of Christian people today um, see Paul as uh, patriarchal or oppressive or excluding women. And I think that that is based largely um, on texts whose meanings are disputed and up for debate and up for discussion. But when we, when we look at Paul's actual practice, um, we see that he uh, trusted women and saw himself as a a partner with Phoebe and saw Phoebe as the most reliable person to uh, bring this letter to accomplish this really important task of fostering the unity of the Roman network of house churches. Um, there's a handful of things to say about verse 17 and following. Paul says, uh, now I exhort you brothers and sisters to watch out uh, watch out for or pay careful attention to the ones making divisions and obstacles apart from the teaching that you learned and turn away from them. So the Roman Christians are supposed to watch out for those who are sowing division or who are uh, fostering these hierarchies or are putting up barriers to fellowship. And re remember the main thing that Paul wants the two groups in these churches to do offer each other hospitality and participate in a, the warm fellowship of a meal. And anybody that's setting obstacles in the way of that, uh, turn away from them. I mean, don't listen to these people. Rebuke them. These are threats. They very well may be very sincere in their convictions. I mean, this is what modern Christians say. Well, they're really sincere. Like that's the ultimate test. Sincerity. They're well-meaning. They really believe what they're saying. That does not matter. I mean, back to chapter 7. 
Um, you can be a, you can be as sincere as possible. You can be fully sincere till the cows come home. Does not matter. Um, you very well may be delighting in the law of God in your mind and in your strategizing, but what is effected, what is produced, if that's division, if that's the construction of a hierarchy, uh, where this group matters more than that group, or this group is holier than that group, um, so that fellowship and warm commensality is broken up, that is sharing together in the meal. If that is broken up, that is a threat. Anyone breaking that up or denouncing or judging others resulting uh, in division, those people are supposed to be regarded as threats. And that is just so instructive for our day, it seems to me, um, because it seems like, especially my inherited tradition, and when I was younger and in seminary, this was like, this was how you sort of um, established your credentials as somebody passionate for God's glory, is to draw as strict lines around doctrinal distinctives and lifestyle choices as possible. Um, but these are not people who are loyal to the truth. The truth scandalizes such people. Uh, the truth is all about the reality of a community that is scandalously inclusive. And the people who want to exclude and who want to draw lines, those are the threats. We have things so backwards. Paul says that these people are not serving as slaves, our Lord Christ, but they're serving as slaves their own appetites, their own belly, literally, another body part in the Greek text. Uh, and through smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the innocent. So Paul is a postmodern skeptic here, wonderfully so. And he sees, uh, he discerns hidden agendas at work. These people are only serving themselves. They're selling you something. Again, this is so instructive for how we discern the various voices to which Christians give heed in our day. Um, people who want to draw tight lines and sow division, they have agendas. They build their, they want to build platforms. They want to establish constituencies. And all of this is part of a massive uh, money-making scheme or um, a prestige-gathering scheme they want to sell books, or they want to become Christian celebrities, or whatever, or be, be regarded as authorities. Um, listen to the voices that are fostering the practices of hospitality and that are fostering the kind of community vision that scandalizes the line-drawing people, um, and that includes the marginalized and draws us all together as fellow table um, guests at Jesus's table. Those are the people that we ought to be listening to um, because such people want to posture themselves as alongside the rest of us, not as authorities over the rest of us. So when Paul exhorts his audiences to be wise with regard to what is good and innocent with regard to what is evil in verse 19, he wants his communities to be practicing goodness, to become skilled in the practices of goodness, the practices of generosity and unity and hospitality. Um, and don't gain the skills that have to do with fostering divisiveness or judgment or denunciation or exclusion. 
Um, those are the lines of good and evil with regard to the moral world of Paul's letter to the Romans. What brings about rich community life on one hand and what destroys community life on the other? And the rest of uh, chapter 16 is Paul making a bunch of closing comments. I'm not going to talk about all of that. I just wanted to hit the main impulses of this letter. Um, so with loads of details throughout this whole uh, season, loads of details left on the floor, left unexplored, that's Romans. That's my reading of the letter anyway. And as I've said a number of times, I've tried since the beginning um, to draw every portion of text into Paul's main objective, to bring about the unity of a divided community and to generate among um, the network of house churches, to generate the warm practices of hospitality um, so that they might be the glory of God, um, the glory of the God who raised Jesus from the dead and who promises to raise them from the dead. So in the next episode, I think um, I'm going to draw some conclusions from Romans and to draw some implications for modern day issues that we're all facing, especially um, uh, loads of implications for social practices regarding gender and race, nationality, ethnicity, and quite a bit else. And I'll do that in the next episode, the final episode of this season, season three of Faith Improvised, before I move on to something completely different whatever that is. Well, the sun's peeking out from the clouds. It's turning into an absolutely gorgeous afternoon on this first day of spring uh, 2022. And I'm heading out for a walk. It's a beautiful day. Don't let it get away. <laughs>